everyone, and welcome to the Friday, February 12th, 2021 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week on the podcast, Governor Kim Reynolds declares mission accomplished against COVID-19, State House Republicans target public education, and it's awards season. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for Lee Enterprises. With me today are Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Aaron. Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Aaron. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. Before we get going, I just wanted to point out here real quickly that as I prepared for this weekend's podcast, I discovered that I haven't had to fill in as host for James Lynch. The last time was March of 2020, just as the COVID pandemic was beginning to rear its ugly head. So I just want to get out there. If this new strain of the virus turns into something nasty and that coincides with me hosting this weekend, we know who to blame for all of this. Send all your emails to James Lynch. As a reminder, you can subscribe to the On Iowa Politics podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. First up this week, in the war against COVID-19, Governor Kim Reynolds lays down her sword. Reynolds late last week, in fact, very shortly after this podcast was recorded last weekend, lifted what significant COVID-19 mitigation strategies remained in Iowa, namely a partial public face mask requirement limits on public gatherings. Iowa's COVID numbers have been plummeting since a horrible surge in November and December. In the weeks since, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths have all been on a significant and steady decline. Reynolds cited those numbers, the hospitalizations in particular, in explaining her decision. That decision, by the way, was made without consulting her state public health department. Todd, setting aside the numbers and trends for a moment, that seems like an oversight to me anyways, to make such a monumental decision without huddling with the six-figure salary subject matter experts on the state payroll. Does it not to you? Yeah, you know, I, I agree had this been a public health decision, but I think it's it's become pretty clear that this was a political decision, which a lot of her mm. COVID mitigation measures, decisions, you know, however you can say it is, uh, have been political. Mm. I mean, she she made this she made this call on, late on a Friday. She then went on Sean Hannity's show to, to uh, talk about how great we're doing, you know, how great I was doing in the pandemic. And then uh, the the next day, she immediately began fundraising off her decision to to throw these measures out, saying that, you know, radical leftists want to shut down the state and she's got to fight them. So, yeah, this I've seen a lot of people on social media say this is the this is the beginning of her campaign for reelection or her campaign for something. But I would I would sort of tend to agree with that. This this wasn't a public health decision. Well, and, and so speaking of the public health side, let, let's go back to those numbers real quick, Todd. They would appear to indicate that maybe it is safe to lift those restrictions right now. But I can't help but wonder if it's sort of like when you're taking medication for a chronic condition, you don't stop taking the medicine once you start to feel better. You keep taking the medicine because it's what's making you feel better. So, so to bring that analogy back here to Iowa, it, it would appear anyways that whatever Iowans have been doing these past few months, including the face mask mandate, including 
social distancing requirements and limits on gatherings. It would seem those things are working. So, so I guess the question is, why would we stop now? Well, I mean, this is, she's done this before. I mean, we had measures in place early in the pandemic that she pulled uh, in April and pulled them on a day when we at that time had the most deaths recorded in the, in the pandemic at that point. Uh, and then, you know, she, we went through the summer and colleges went back and, and there were spikes in those counties and she put some measures in place and then rescinded them. And then she campaigned all through October while troubling increases in, in cases and hospitalizations and deaths started happening. And then, you know, put in some measures a little bit after we hit the peak, actually, if you, if you look at the, if you look at the, at the uh, charts of the, the line charts of cases. So uh, yeah, we we've, we've been through this before where she's thrown things open and despite the, the warnings of health experts who say, you know, this, there are signs that something bad could happen down the road if you do this. And, and this time it's these more contagious variants of the virus that are showing up in the United States from from we're in England and elsewhere and and there are warnings that this more contagious strain could cause you know more spikes in cases so despite that warning she's going ahead and uh and you know I hope I hope she's right and she has opened us up and everything's going to be fine but as we've seen with previous decisions of the along these lines that hasn't been the case yeah, and, and we do have the vaccine coming out now. Hopefully, that yeah helps. And we're uh, yeah, and we're not getting we're not getting it very fast. So right, I mean that's, that's the other problem with that. Yep. Yeah, it's it's you know if this was if this opening had been tied to some percentage of the population getting vaccines, I mean it was it was already pretty weak sauce. I mean these this mask mandate that you know fifteen minutes six feet apart right. <laughs> I mean it, it was already wasn't much, and then now she's thrown out the little bit that we did have and and I think the worst part about it is she sends a signal to people that you know they don't have to be cautious. She can tell people and mm-hmm. say she trusts Iowans, but you know we've all been out there and seen people without masks and 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 packing bars in college towns and stuff it's you know people aren't aren't you know doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and so speaking of uh, those businesses, Tom, you wrote this week about how some Quad Cities area restaurants and bars are, are reacting to or how they're handling the lifted COVID mitigations. What did you find out? So a number of Davenport and Bettendorf restaurants have said they will keep the broader CDC recommendations for indoor dining in place, requiring masks, limiting capacity, uh, requiring people social distance. Other owners and managers said they welcomed uh, the chance to further open their business. Um, In all, about 16 businesses throughout Scott County said uh, employees would remain masked and CDC safety recommendations would be followed. Another 22 Scott County restaurants declined to talk about Reynolds' decision or say what they plan to do. A number of them said, uh, quote, everyone is tired of talking about COVID-19. A handful said they would do what's best for their business and their employees, but declined to offer any further information. Uh, We did speak to one downtown Davenport bar and restaurant owner, and he said he was surprised to see the restrictions lifted, building off of 
um, what, what you and Todd had to say with, you know, the analogy of taking medication if, if you've got a, a chronic condition. Um, so again, he said he was surprised to see the restrictions lifted because it seemed like to him that they were actually working. As you guys mentioned, hospitalizations from COVID-19 had dropped to their lowest since last September, and the number of new cases had ebbed somewhat. Uh, so this Davenport business owner said many QC businesses, quote, would like to see more effort now, uh, end quote, on the state's part in pushing COVID-19 mitigation strategies, quote, so we don't have to go back to drastic measures if the COVID infection numbers start to go back up. Uh, you know, worried that if we do start to see a um, spike or resurgence in cases that um, that, that could lead to um, having to close down businesses or lead to maybe more, um, again, more, more drastic measures. There was a, a bar and restaurant owner in Eldridge in rural Scott County, however, uh, who welcomed uh, Reynolds lifting the restrictions, saying patrons uh, would make fun of her staff for wearing masks and that she felt COVID-19 was not a concern for rural Iowa, feeling that uh, small farm communities and businesses like hers with a small established clientele are somehow insulated uh, from the spread of the virus. She said, lifting the restrictions allows businesses the flexibility to decide on their own what's best for their business and operations to protect the health of employees and, and customers while still making money or you know trying to somehow remain profitable during this pandemic. Yeah, that, that's interesting to hear kind of responses from all over the spectrum. And, and, and that'll be the interesting too moving forward from this is businesses are still obviously free to kind of self monitor, you know, and self police. However, they see fit. I, I was in target the other day and they're still requiring uh, masks for everybody to come in. Um, so, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to kind of see the spectrum of ways business handles handle this over the, over the coming weeks here. Um, yeah, they'll, Amy, they'll have to, I'm sorry, go uh, ahead. Todd. I was going to say they'll have to decide how many of their customers are radical leftists and how many of them are, are freedom loving. <laughs> Do I, should I have put that like on a name tag? Hi, my name is Aaron Murphy and I am, uh, am or am not a radical leftist. Maybe that. <laughs> oh, you don't, you don't need to wear a name tag. You just tell that you're a just radical put my leftist. press badge on, right? That, that answers it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, Amy, uh, you're joining us fresh from a, um, a little chat uh, with Congresswoman Hinson on, on the, speaking of the topic of vaccines. And, and Todd mentioned the, the rollout in Iowa has been kind of slow. Uh, part of that may be some issues with the, the procedure here in Iowa. Part of that may be uh, Iowa's not getting as many doses as other states on a per population basis. What did the Congresswoman have to say about all this? She said she's she's sent a letter to the Biden administration. Um, she's trying to she said she's in constant communication with the CDC and the HHS, the Health and Human Services Department. Um, and they're sort of talking through barriers like this, like, why aren't there more vaccines coming to Iowa? Um, but there's not really a reason that, that she gave for that. And I, maybe she doesn't know why that is. Um, we're still trying to figure it out, I think, ourselves, just like, where is the breakdown? Um, but she said there there's also a lag in data. Um, and she's heard a lot about this lag in rural areas. So so maybe that's part of the problem is that they just don't know where the vaccine isn't getting to. Um, and then she also talked about um, there's language barriers. She was traveling the state this week, um, talking to a whole bunch of different places and, and businesses and people. And she went to a community health center 
um, and was talking with um, some people and they said, you know, they have 39 different languages at just the Eastern Iowa Health Center um, in 2020 that were that were spoken. So she was saying, we're trying to figure out how we can look at these resources to help with not only transportation, getting the vaccine to places like Iowa, but also translation. And so that's some some of the things that she's going to be looking at. Um, but as far as the the rolling back the mask mandate, she was also asked about this. And, you know, Tom's sort of contention that business owners are taking it upon themselves seems to be the tack that that Hinson is going. I, I think she's pretty reluctant to um, say anything against, you know, the governor. Um, she noted that she still wears a mask and she thinks that's important to protect those around her. Um, and she also says, you know, it's important to get vaccines in the arms of teachers um, she wants to open up, you know, the schools and, and things. So that's why she's really trying to focus on that. But she said, everyone should be, in my opinion, vigilant and following the rules where they live. So if your city is Cedar Rapids, for example, or Waterloo or, or Cedar Falls, you know, and you've still got a citywide mass mandate in place, that's important. All right. Elsewhere in the Iowa capital, public education remained a prominent subject matter in the early stages of this legislative session. But the focus is not, for the moment anyway, on the governor's sweeping school choice bill. It's lately been on a few proposals that have public education advocates concerned, if not outright angry. One bill brought by Western Iowa Republican Representative Skylar Wheeler would ban K-12 school districts from using any curriculum that teaches off of the New York Times' 1619 project which detailed the impact and influence slavery had on the formation and early years of our country. Now, we could do a whole podcast on the 1619 Project, even a whole series. The Times actually did just that. But to summarize things as succinctly as possible for the purpose of today's discussion, some historians believe the project includes some significant inaccuracies. The Times disagrees with that assessment. And conservatives in particular have taken umbrage with the project's thesis about the degree to which slavery influenced the forming of our country. Setting aside the concern about whether state lawmakers should be dictating curriculum to school districts, and that's a big aside, uh, Amy and Tom, I want to bring you both in on this. Amy, I'll start with you. One of the top contributors to the 1619 Project uh, at the Times is a Waterloo, Iowa native, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who actually won a Pulitzer Prize for her essay in the project. Mm -hmm. So between having a hometown girl atop the credits and given Waterloo has the highest percentage of black residents in Iowa, I can probably take a guess at how this bill is being received there. But for the sake of the podcast, I'll let you tell me anyway. Yeah, not well. So Andrew Wind uh, with The Courier has been really great about doing these stories. Um, he's, he's definitely our, our school's guy and, and gets right in there. And, and he, you know, talked to, you know, let's see, we got a Waterloo East um, teacher that has been teaching it and, and thinks that, you know, he uses it quite extensively in his Black history classes. Um, it's, he believes it's more of a robust telling than simply that, manifest destiny telling of, of history where, you know, sort of only the Europeans that came over and colonized are centered. Like, so it's, it's very much like the push across the country. Like there are new perspectives that we should be taking a look at, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And beyond that, 
we've got there's there's so much coming out of the Cedar Falls School District right now in terms of um, a couple racist incidents that then piled onto a couple more racist incidents um, that have snowballed, you know, into the Human Rights Commission, into the school district, into the city at large, that are really just showing like, okay, there is still very much a population that could use history like this, that really does need to, you know, understand a history in a way that they haven't before, that they're very cavalier with things like the N-word. And, and that sort of thing needs to be grounded in education. And education, of course, includes history. T- Tom, the Times had a similar story. Well, uh, one of your colleagues there wrote uh, a story that uh, quoted some Quad Cities leaders um, who also expressed some pretty strong feelings about this proposed legislation. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the wonderful Tom Lowy wrote a story gathering reaction from local black leaders, educators, and and others who essentially universally panned the bill. Um, And building off of what Amy said, one Davenport parent said, uh, quote, you didn't have to look very far to see inequality in the treatment of students of color, noting the Davenport school district was audited because of its unequal treatment of black and disabled students. Um, and, and so she went on to say, you know, quote, this is another way to discourage curiosity. And it isn't just about what black students might learn. The parent said, this bill is about the fear of what white students might learn. It's the fear mm-hmm. white kids will start thinking about inequality. And she went on to say that she's ashamed of the bill and that, that we can do better. Um, the reporter also talked to a uh, professor who teaches um woman studies at St. Ambrose University, but also has long studied history and the intersection of underrepresented people uh, within our cultural institutions. And she, again, said that she was uh, deeply embarrassed by the bill. Uh, She said, quote, it is disappointing and frankly, intellectually bankrupt to willfully reject the notion that teaching about our nation's past must include a variety of lenses and perspectives, she said, when we hear other voices, we have a broader understanding of what history means from different viewpoints. And, and I think that that, for the most part, does a good job of summing up some of the reactions and feelings, at least here in the Quad Cities, um, among uh, educators, historians, and, and uh, civic and community leaders, particularly Black leaders, about this bill and what it would do. Um, just really quickly to end on that point, um, Davenport Alderman Patrick Peacock uh, told told Tom Lowy, he said, quote, Iowa is good if you want to come here and work. Iowa is good if you want to come here. Um, unless you come here and try to talk about your culture or your history. Mm. That's a powerful one. Uh, and, and I'm going to add in a little shameless plug here. I'm, I'm coming to this podcast fresh off the Iowa press set uh, where we talked about a lot of things education related, but including this bill um, with um, uh, the House Education Committee members, one Republican, one Democrat. And of course, that Democrat is Rod Smith from the Waterloo area and, and a black man who obviously had a really interesting perspective on this. So, so I encourage you, everyone, to tune into Iowa Press over the weekend, too. Uh, Todd Schuyler Wheeler, again, the representative of the Republican who brought this bill, says it's not about stopping schools from teaching about slavery. He stated his concerns are, well, first of all, he said that it's a Trojan horse for leftist policy advocacy, which we've heard that one 
before. Um, but he said is also the big concerns are with il- the alleged inaccuracies in the 1619 project. And that's why it shouldn't be taught off of. It's okay to teach about slavery, just not based on the 1619 project. What, what's your reaction to that argument, Todd? Uh, I don't think his concerns are legitimate. I mean, a lot of it is just sort of political posturing, talking about turning fourth graders into leftists and all this, you know, ridiculous nonsense. And, you know, and, and you know, also something to consider is that this is, I mean, all history scholarship has flaws. I mean, you can't, there is no definitive perfect version of American history. This yeah. is a new and bold perspective that ought to be taught along a lot of, along with a lot of perspectives. And, and secondly, it's, it's, this is a piece of journalism and he's trying to basically censor a piece of journalism from being, you know, so it can't be used in classrooms. I mean, what's next? Are they going to, our, our newspaper and education programmers are going to be a bill requiring that Cedar Rapids schools take the editorial page out of the newspaper before they distribute it to kids so that we don't indoctrinate them in leftist propaganda. I mean, don't give me that idea. I know. I mean, that's, this is, this is what this is. I mean, this is about basically trying to silence a voice that's a set of voices that are saying things that Skylar Wheeler and his, and his folks don't like. So that's, that's not how a legislature should operate. That's not how we should operate schools. And it's, you know, and ironically in trying to save American histories, basically being un-American. And again, uh, all this setting aside uh, the question of whether state lawmakers should be dictating local schools' uh, curriculum. Um, uh, Staying in the public education realm, but moving up to the universities, uh, Republicans also this week advanced one legislative proposal that would abolish tenure at the state's three public universities and another that would require those schools to pull their faculty on their political affiliation. Todd, uh, you've been at the Gazette for a while now. Do you have tenure there yet? Uh, surprisingly, <laughs> no. No, I, I don't. Oh, okay. In fact, I, I I get up every day thinking this will be my last day of work. So <laughs> don't we all? Wow. <laughs> don't we all? Uh, so so Todd, what's your read on these bills? Part part of the there's a theory out there that Republicans don't necessarily even want these to pass. They're just Shots across the bow from conservatives who feel that their ideal ideology has become unwelcome on poli- on public college campuses. Is that a fair concern? Do Republicans have a gripe that they're being their free speech is being suppressed on college campuses? Well, I mean, you know, there are individual instances where you know there have been fights over over speech and and who can come to campus and speak and all of those things. Uh, I know that that rankles them. And, you know, and if you look around the state, I mean, they, they have sort of this penchant for saying to themselves, if we can't control an institution, we're going to we're going to damage it. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, they control the legislature and the governor's office, their judges control the Supreme Court. And now they're looking at the state universities and thinking, well, we, we can't take those over. So we'll just, you know, enact policy that would be incredibly destructive. I don't know if these are just shots across the bow. I think in past years, I would probably lean that direction, but they've got these big majorities and they seem to be a little, I mean, there, there seems to be a more, they're, they're more strident this year. They're just more, more, uh, I don't know what exact word I'm looking for, but they just seem more intent on doing this stuff than they have in the past. So yeah, they may move through subcommittees and committees and then not go anywhere. But uh, I mean, the tenure bill would be, 
incredibly destructive. I mean, and you look at the the list of groups that are lobbying against it. I mean, you've got the pork producers and business groups and because they all know that this is going to chill research. It's going right. to, you know, yep. keep keep projects away from this from the state. It's it would just be a, a huge mistake just to, to do something that destructive just so you could grind a political axe at the at the libs on campus. And, and there's an argument being made that even if these bills don't pass just by having the discussion that could be yeah. happening, right? Well, I think with a lot of this, a lot of this agenda that we've seen this year is giving, you know, a, a well-educated, you know, professor someplace that's looking at a job in Iowa, it's going to give them pause. Do they want to come and live in a red state where this kind of stuff is even debated? I mean, it's, this is going to be a problem in lots of different professions. It's an economic development program as we try to get, you know, coastal businesses and Silicon Valley businesses to sort of move here and, and put, you know, staff here, they're not going to want to work here if, if, if we make the state, you know, into, into you know, Kansas. Well, I thought that's what we're, we're getting those because of the mask, because the mask mandate's gone. All those businesses from California are going to come to Iowa now because we don't have a mask mandate. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll pull, pull transgender out of our civil rights code and stuff. They'll, they'll love it. They'll, they'll be, they'll be beating the path. Oh boy. All right. Well, before we leave this week, I want to do a little uh, back padding here on behalf of the podcast. The Iowa Newspaper Association's annual contest winners were announced this week, and some congratulations are in order. So congratulations to Amy Rivers for her first place award for best personality feature story. Pause for applause here. Way to go, Amy. Yay! (laughs) And congratulations to the team over at the Gazette for earning a first place award for coverage of government and politics. So another big round of applause there. And Tom Barton also snuck an honor in there. So good job, Tom, as did our recently former podcaster and colleague, Brett Hayworth, formerly of the Sioux City Journal. So it was a good, good award season for the podcasters. Sadly, however, I must also air a grievance here because somehow the On Iowa Politics podcast did not win did not even place in the best <laughs> podcast category. Clearly, there was widespread fraud in the voting for best podcast, and I am calling on the Iowa legislature to disavow the INA results and declare on Iowa politics the winner. Yep. We, will keep, we will keep you yeah. abreast of that situation as it unfolds <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> uh, on that note, that's it for this week. It's week's edition of on Iowa politics. Thanks to everybody for listening. We hope it was worth your time. If you like the show, subscribe and tell a friend and fan mail can be sent to on Iowa politics at gmail.com. And don't forget the work of everyone you heard today, the award winning work in some cases can be found on the pages and websites of the quad city times, Waterloo Cedar Falls courier, Sioux city journal, Mason city globe gazette, Muscatine journal and Cedar Rapids gazette. And the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Parel. I need to get that one in there now, too. Kelly Party Cooper will play us out this weekend. If you know a talented band or Iowa musician who should be featured on our show, send us a sound file. For Amy, Tom, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening. Surprise, it won't
Jack. Black. 